It may be the guy working it. Oh, there we go. Okay, here we go. All right, Philippians, book Philippians, chapter 2. We, last Sunday night, we finished uh, in verses 1 through 4, and tonight we'll look at verses 5 through 7 of chapter 2 of, of Philippians. There's a lot of doctrinal truth in this passage here, as well as, as, well as um, the working, of, working out of that truth in Christ Jesus in our world. And you could even say in eternity. I want you to get this as we start. Christ as God can never cease to be who he eternally is. Everybody get that? Christ the Son of God, who is God, can never, never cease to be who he eternally is. Everybody got that? You understand it? Okay. He does what he does because, and he can do what he's going to do. What we're going to talk about tonight because he is God. But in, in this teaching tonight, there's no time, there is no time that he ceases to be who he eternally is. Now, the uniqueness of Jesus, which again is beyond my comp- full comprehension, is that at the very same time, he's 100% man and 100% God. Okay? He became, 100, he became man. He took on the flesh of his own creation in what we call the incarnation. Okay? But prior to his incarnation, he is eternal God. Yet when he took on the form of man, he never ceased to be who he eternally is. Now, this is significant, particularly as we move on ahead and we talk about the cross. Who died upon the cross? Did God die on the cross? Or did, did the man Jesus die upon the cross? And the answer has to be that the man Jesus did because God cannot die. Okay. These things, you, you build, a, you know, I forget the lady, Archer, is that the one? <coughs> precept lady? Precept upon precept. You build your doctrine precept upon precept, and they need to tie together so, so that you're not... You don't get off in some wild thing like, like some people who deny the Trinity and move it into a oneness theology and, and people who deny, who say Jesus was 50-50 and, and when Jesus was on the, on the earth he was a man and when he was in heaven that he was God and, and never was completely, you know, both at the same time. You get all these kind of strange doctrines because people don't think about sometimes what they say. So Paul here in Philippians is going to teach us some things about Jesus. What he's going to teach us, once again, is that only God himself could do what's described here in this passage. No man could, could do this. No man could make it happen. Yet, eternal God who took on flesh can do these things. So let's, let's read the scripture and we'll talk some more about it. If you have a question tonight, this is a more of a teaching time on Sunday night. So if you have a question, say, well, would you go back over that? Would you say that again? And if you get, get real annoying, then I'll tell you no. But other than that, no, I won't. Uh, I want you to get this. This is real important. This is, this is some of the basics. This really is some of the basics, yet, yet I, I don't even recall this really dug into even when I was going through Bible college and stuff. But this really basic uh, foundational truths uh, of, of the identity of Christ. It's very important. So here's what he said. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
but made of himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I want to ask you this before we move on. Will God, does God, share his glory with anybody else? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Yet what we see as we look into this passage here is a clear teaching that Jesus is going to receive the glory that belongs to God. What's that tell you about Jesus? Well, it tells you that, that he's God. All right, let's go back to the beginning, though. Paul, speaking to you and I, and he's going to use the ultimate example. When we talked about this last week, when it talked about, we talked about being one and the need for, for true humility in order that we might be one as the body of Christ. When people put themselves above other people, when people see certain groups or certain people as more important than other people, when people have to have their own way, then unity does not happen. But he, tell, he tells us that, he, last week we talked about how he called us to unity. Now, in order for that unity to happen, we must be one in mind, in the same mind as Christ. And that's, what he, that's the example that he's going to give here. I remind you that it was Jesus in his last prayer for us where he prayed that God would make us one as he and his Father are one, that we would be one in him and one with each other. He prayed for unity. Paul, his message over and over again in his epistles is for the body of Christ to be knitted together, to be unified, to be one body. Because a divided body cannot stand. And a divided body is going in too many different directions. And we have one message, we have one task, we have one goal, we have, we have one purpose in this lost world is to share the gospel with Jesus Christ. So God has called us to be unified. But unity doesn't happen by decision alone. Now certainly there are decisions that go on. And, but the primary decision that people need to make in order for there to be biblical unity is to believe in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Because Jesus is the basis for all unity. And by the way, I believe he's also the basis for separation. Because there are, there, there are biblical teachings that, that there, are, there are times that we separate. That we have nothing to do with people. And I'm not talking about hate them. And I'm not talking about look down upon them. And I'm not talking about cease praying for them. But, but there is a unity, a biblical unity that's based solely upon the fact that we have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel unifies the body of Christ. It makes the body of Christ one. It is the distinction of the body of Christ that sets us apart from any other religious group on the face of the earth. There is no biblical unity for us with the Islamic religion. doesn't mean we hate them. doesn't mean we detest them. It means that they need to hear the gospel. Okay, and there's a whole, there, I mean, there's a whole list. I just used one, one of the major ones we deal with. Okay, and, and we've got to be careful that we don't try to create ecumenical unity on a religious experience basis rather than it be set upon the fact of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. We're not at liberty to make unions that way. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that we're, it's just, you know, what, what relationship does light have with darkness? Does, does, the, does the spirit of Christ have with Bilal? I can't even say that word, but with the devil? There is no unity. 
And he actually says to his people, come out from among them and be ye separate. We're not to join ourselves in that, in that unifying form with, with anybody or any group other than those who belong to Christ. So he is, he is the key when it comes to unity. And that doesn't mean we're going to agree on every other little side doctrine or application and stuff like that. In this room alone, with all these Baptists in here, we don't agree. Okay? So, you know, you have to be careful what, you know, what unifies you, and you also have to be careful what divides you. Because you, you don't want to be guilty of causing division for an unbiblical reason. Because that's just as bad as joining with people for an unbiblical reason. You say, oh, now we're caught in a catch-22, aren't we? Where are we going to stay? We stay right in the middle with Christ. Keep your eyes upon Jesus Christ. So you want to be careful in both ways. You don't want to make an unbiblical unity with somebody or alliance with somebody. And you don't want to cause an unbiblical division or, or problem. Because actually the Bible says one of the things that God hates is, is, is the one who sows discord among the brothers. Among the believers. That's one of the things that God hates. He doesn't like it when, when people intentionally come in and cause discord or disunity or disruption in the body of Christ. His goal is unity. But that goal is only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everybody got that, right? Okay, let's move on then. So, after he calls for that unity, then he says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Our ultimate, if I can, our ultimate example for the kind of mind that we ought to be moving for and the kind of attitude and the kind of way we live and the kind of way we look at life ought to be Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's the ultimate example. Okay. Now we hopefully know, we know right now you can't get there again by being determined to get there. You can't get there by working. You say, well, I'm a Christian. I can, I can work hard to get there. No, you can't do it that way either. To be in, in the same place that Christ is, to have the mind of Christ requires not determination. It actually requires surrender. It actually requires submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can give us the mind of Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can make us begin to look like our Savior. And by the way, that's his work of sanctification in us, in us if you think about it. His work of sanctification in us is to continually remold us and remake us into the very image of Christ. So that as we walk in the Holy Spirit, here's the point. As we walk in the Holy Spirit, what the world needs to see is not a bunch of Christians, people trying to be like Jesus. What they need to see is Christ in us. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. That's when he talks about this mind of Christ. A, submit, a, a surrender to the Holy Spirit or submission to the Holy Spirit is, 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 is acknowledging who he is in our life and giving control. Now, it might bother you to say giving control. It bothers me a little bit because I believe God's sovereign. But there's a unique relationship that God has with us, even as his children. Now, I'm not talking about salvation right now, coming into salvation. I'm talking about we who are saved. <coughs> Everybody here certainly believes, I'm sure, that if God wanted to, he could make you believe anything, do anything, act any way he wants to. Right? Everybody got that? He can put a spiritual hammer lock on you, and you'll go anywhere he tells you to go. Okay? It's not, it's not about, it's not, when we talk about it this way, it's not a matter of his inability to overcome our will completely and make us do whatever he wants us to do. Yet, can anybody um, think of something this week in your life that you know was not led of the Holy Spirit and you did it anyway? Bunch of liars in here? Right now i got one on you. Okay? 
We all did that sometime this week, didn't we? Whether it was a thought, whether it was a word, whether it was something we actually did. Something that we know, if we really look back at it, we know was contrary to the will of God in our life. How is that possible if the Holy Spirit makes you do everything? You do? It really bothers me when people teach such things as everything that happens happens because God makes it happen. I, I, that, to me, that, that is an attack on the very character of God. And I understand about the sovereignty of God, but I believe in a God who's so sovereign. He's, he, that just simply means he doesn't answer to anybody. Okay? And it's not about a matter of his power. He, as I said, he could make us do anything that he wants. But he has, he has brought us in, into a relationship. This Christian faith is a relationship with God that requires our continual response to his work in our life. And it could be said that you and I could not even possibly respond to him every day, except that we know him as our Savior. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that one for sure. But, but even we Christians have the ability to, to disobey God and to, to do things that are contrary. And how many, has anybody here said, ever said to God, God, please take away my free will so I'll, I'll not do those things again? Ever felt that way? Please, just take it away. He doesn't want a bunch of robotic creatures. This whole relationship with God was established and based on love. His love toward us. And then John reminds us, we can love him. We can love him. Genuinely love him. Not by compulsion. Not because he's bigger and stronger. He is. Not because he's almighty. He is. But we can genuinely love him because he first loved us. It was God who chose the way this relationship would work, not man. I, I, if we were in charge, we would probably do that. We'd get everybody in line. You're going to do what I think? Mm, it right in your head right now. You're going to do it. You know I'd like to do that sometimes, don't you, Chip? Okay. So you're going to think the way I think. You're going to do what I tell you to do. But God, can God do that? Of course he can, but he doesn't. I want you to get that. It's so important. That we understand the basis for God establishing a relationship with us is his love. For God so loved the world. And within that basis of love, he set the criteria for, for us to be able to respond to him in the same way. And if there's no choice, folks, there's no genuine love. If you are compelled, it's not out of love. It's not based on a relationship. It's based on, on someone who's dominant and overpowering. All those things are true. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it wonderful? That almighty, think about it, almighty God, who could make me and you do anything that he wants us to, wants to have a genuine relationship with us that's based upon love. His love toward us first, of course. But then our love in response to his love. I like, that's why I quoted it that way. We can love him. Because he first loved us. We have the possibility of loving him because he first loved us. He set the parameters of that. Now, Jesus becomes that prime example when it comes to this matter of, of, of who we need to be. And as we surrender to the Holy Spirit, as we willfully surrender to the Holy Spirit daily, he, he works in our life and he transforms us from the inside out. So that, so that, that he, he's at work making us into the very image of Christ. And we're always the one that halts that. 
We're always the one that stops that. We're always the one that throws a little monkey wrench into the, into the gears and stuff and, and stop that hap- from happening. And he could override, but he doesn't. So that's why Paul speaks to us. There's a decision we have to make. And that decision, are we going to let that mind that was in Christ be also in us? Again, we can't determine it. We've got to surrender to it. Now, let's go on. Let's look at this matter of this example of true humility. The true humility of Christ. And in verses 6 through 8, we see a lot of these doctrinal truths that, 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 that we have to get a hold of in order to stand, understand the humility of Christ. Look at verse 6. Here's what it says. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So what is Paul saying in verse 6? Paul is saying that Jesus is equal with God. Now, if Jesus is equal with God, what does that have to tell you about Jesus? That he's God. Okay? God didn't become God. God is not an evolving God. He's not a developing God. He's not a discovering God. Please understand, he's not discovering, he's not learning. God's not learning anything new. He's not wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. He's not even wondering what you're thinking about what's going on right now in your life as he deals he with it. He is perfectly and fully and completely who he is all the time, and he always has been, and he always shall be. Now, Paul says of Jesus, he's God. Now, when you think about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, again, sometimes when we treat that, teach that, and even as the Bible deals with this relationship that's going on in the Bible, we, we tend, to, tend to do this. We tend to put God the Father as being the big guy, the big one. The Son is a little bit less than the Father, and the Holy Spirit, he's down here somewhere else. Because he's the one we can tell what to do. That's what we think. So how the Bible doesn't teach it like this. The Bible teaches God. God. The Father is God. The Father is fully God. If he's any less God than fully God, then he's not God at all. The Son is God. He's fully God. Again, if he's any less than fully God, he's not God at all. You can't be partial to God. You've got to be God or not God. The Holy Spirit is God. Once again, he's fully God. He's not partial God, because if he was partial God, what? You got it yet? He wouldn't be God at all. Okay. But here's what you need to know. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Now, let that just sort of in your head for a while. See, oneness theology teaches that God manifests himself in three different representation. Okay? God is at one time the Father, at one time the Son, one time the Holy Spirit, and they're all three the same. Okay? The Bible teaches three distinct persons of the Trinity. Yet, the Trinity is not three gods, it's one God. Again. Okay? Now, the point here is, when we talk about true humility... I want you to think about who Jesus is. Who who is he eternally? Well, he's God. Any, I don't want to say reduction in, in, let me put it this. I said it earlier. He can't reduce who he is. But he certainly can set aside the prerogatives of who he is 
to walk as a man. The mere fact that he put on flesh, the mere fact that he stepped into time, tells you that he willingly set aside some of the prerogatives of deity. Remember who God is? He knows no time. He knows no space. He's eternal. (laughs) There's no limit. But Jesus grew. Jesus had flesh. The Bible says that God is not flesh and blood. Okay? So, when we talk about what Jesus did in coming as, in the incarnation, in coming as a man, it is the ultimate act of humility. The willingness to set aside, not his, not who he eternally is, but to set aside the prerogative of his deity to come as a man. I always like to think of it this way. Jesus in eternity path in heaven, all he ever knew was praise and adoration. Worshipped. Day and night forever in eternity. Yet willingly, he set, when you talk about setting aside the prerogative, he set aside that to come to an earth that he knew would reject him. And people who would not love him. Certainly people who would not worship him. Okay? But when you, when you think of, the reason it begins here, it talks about his deity, is that we're talking about eternal God. And when we're talking about humility, the eternal God doing something that's incredibly wonderful in order that you and I might know our own salvation. Now that moves us to the second point of this. Look at verse 7 with me. Here's what he said. But made of himself. Now that's, that's, an, that's an important little phrase there. But made of himself. Nobody did this to Jesus. Nobody could do this to God. Only God could do this to himself. Now, what did he do to himself? He made of himself, as he says here, no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. The Greek term that's used here, and many of you I know are familiar with this, is the term kenosis. Okay? I think you have it in your, in your outline if you want to know how it's spelled. Okay? It simply means willingly emptying yourself out of all that you are or all that you deserve. Now, Jesus being God deserved what? Well, everything. But he made up himself. He willingly emptied himself out of the prerogatives of his deity to come as a man. Okay? Again, nobody else could do that. Now you say, well, okay, I got that. Well, do we really get it? Because this is huge. When we use the term around Christmas time, we use the term incarnation. And sometimes we just blow past that and, and, we, and we, we don't see the magnitude of what's taking place here. An act of God. That God would set aside that which is eternally his. He would, if you could, he would put it on a shelf and leave it there so that he would genuinely come as a man. Yet, again, never ceasing to be who he eternally is. It can rightfully be said, as, as we've talked about before, at any time Jesus could have just spoke a word, and because he's the one who spoke it in the creation, he could have spoke a word and everything would have stopped. To me, again, I've said this before, that's the significance of the scripture where it says, when they punished him, when they tortured him, when they put him on a cross, the Bible says he did not utter a word. He did not open his mouth. And again, I said, you know that he said at least seven things from the cross. 
So he wasn't talking about that he wasn't saying anything. What he was actually talking about, he did not open his mouth. Because if he had opened his mouth and said, stop, do you understand that everything would have stopped? Why? Because he is the God who created all things by the very word of his mouth. There are those who start talking about Lazarus. Remember when Lazarus died? Jesus came to the grave and said, very specific. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And I've heard preachers say, well, the reason he didn't just say come forth because the whole grave would have emptied out right there. We need to understand that we're talking about God. When we go back to creation, the Bible clearly teaches ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, God created that which is. He spoke it, it wasn't there, and out of nothing. He didn't take some stuff and sort of mold it together and ply it together and and do all this stuff and, and create what is out of that which already was. There was nothing. Nothing. And he spoke, and that which is came into existence. It's incredible. Who has power like that? Well, the answer is only God does. Okay? And who would have the power to say, hey, God, set aside your prerogative. Set aside your honor. Set aside your, your power, if you will, for a moment. And, and you come. Who on earth has such power? And the answer is nobody. That's why it says that he made of himself. He set these things aside. He willingly did this. The incarnation is huge. Again, if it didn't happen, you and I are still lost in our sins. Paul makes it very clear in the book of Romans that whereas sin entered by one man, that, by, that is the first Adam, by the second Adam, that sin has been taken care of. And he says because the sacrifice of the second Adam is greater than the sin of the first Adam. That's why the sacrifice can cover the sin. But he, he takes great care to talk about this, the last or the second Adam. You understand the word Adam means man? Okay. So when we, when we talk about that, again, we see that Jesus literally became a man. It is the miracle of incarnation. In order to do that, he set aside those things that he had experienced from eternity past to walk as a man. Which, by the way, would answer some of the questions. That people have. If Jesus is God, why, who, did, who was he praying to in the garden? The answer is he was praying to his father. Did he cease to be God? Of course he didn't cease to be God. But he walked fully as a man. Fully as a man. Every man, every man, every man, every human is relying upon God for everything. But he got that? When he talks about that Jesus walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did Jesus walk in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because as a man, he needed to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did he cease to be God? Of course he did. But he walked as a man. Every human needs the Holy Spirit. Everybody getting this? Now, again, these are, these, this is kind of the foundational stuff when we, when we talk about it. But it, that doesn't mean it's shallow. It really, it really makes my head spin. Preparing for this, I'm thinking, oh, how do I share it? You know, because in my head, all these things are going, they're going 100 miles an hour right now. <laughs> thinking about, this is, this is tremendous. And, and, and I think sometimes people just say, oh, well, okay, look, 10 more minutes. <laughs> this is good stuff. This is great. I'm not saying the speaker's good. I'm saying the material's good. Okay? This is the basis, folks. This is not a small thing. This is how you understand that the incarnation, how you understand that Jesus, eternal God, became man and, and dwelt among us. This is how you understand it. 
This is how it works. So, he speaks first in verse, verse 6 of the deity of Christ. Fully God. No denial there. But, in verse 7, he speaks that, that Jesus emptied himself, on his own, emptied himself up out of those prerogatives to come as a man. Again, just to take on flesh is an enormous thing. Then, look at verse 8. He didn't just come as a man, and he certainly didn't come as an exalted man, but from the very beginning, do you, you know the story, from the very beginning, he came as a humble man. He wasn't married into the royal family, although he was. We know that. But he certainly wasn't mar- uh, born into the royal family of that day. His birth was not in a palace. My goodness, his birth was actually where the animals were. You can't get more humble than that. Think about that. And his birth was a, his birthplace, and his birth was not an accident, and the circumstances of his birth, none of those things were accidents. From the very beginning, he came displaying God's, it's amazing to me, God's willingness to completely, this is almighty God, folks, completely humble himself before his own creation. Now you think about that with me for a moment. There is no religious group, there's no deity in any religious group that would do what Jesus Christ did. Not a one. You go right down the list. There's not a one. It's an incredible thing. From the very beginning, in that humble, you know, coming through a humble Jewish maid into a normal family, a family that worked with their hands. Two people of no notoriety at all. In a little town called Bethlehem, which we sing that little, little song, but we're, when we talk little, we're talking little. We're talking just, it, it, it's a village. Okay? And then he grows up in that home. And it's amazing. Do you not find it amazing that at age 12, he's sitting with the teachers telling them what the Bible means? Where'd this kid get that? Because he wasn't really supposed to start that training until about that age. Oh, he, he was to know things by rote. No doubt about that. Because he was there, many say, for his bar mitzvah. He had the things by rote. But he didn't just he, he didn't just say what he memorized. He started to teach them what it meant. And they were astounded. Where did he get all that? And we see him doing miracles. But even in the midst of miracles, even in the midst of, of raising the dead and casting out demons and feeding thousands of people with just a little bit of, of food, at no time did he was there any self-exaltation. Jesus ran from the crowds many times rather than, rather than, rather than want them to come to him. He, he pushed them away because he understood it was not about an event. That's not what he came. It wasn't an event. He wasn't there to put on a show and get as many followers as he could get because he understood the nature of man. You see, when the show's over, most people leave the theater. And if you want to say he was there here for an event, there was one event he was for. He's going to, he was here for, and that's what he's going to talk about. And there was nothing pleasant, nothing wonderful about that. It was the lowliest of ways to die. He came in the most lowly way, and he died in the most lowly way possible. Look at, look at what it says here in verse 8. It says, And being formed in the appearance of as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. Now, I want you to think about this. You say, he had to be obedient? Well, yes. Do you remember his prayer in the, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That was a genuine prayer, folks. That's not just something he said to put in a Bible somewhere. That was a genuine prayer. He struggled that night. And he wept before his father. And he called out to his father God. And he said, if there's any way possible for this to happen without this happening like this, would you take this cup from me? And the response was, there's no other way. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Paul speaks of that obedience, complete obedience to his father in all things, even to death. Because as I've told you many times, that death was not merely a physical, uh, the physical pain that, that the Romans placed upon. But you remember Isaiah 53 I preached on a couple weeks ago? It speaks of the fact that on that cross his father poured out his wrath upon the son. It was the father who punished the son. He bore our sin. Can you imagine? How many of us in here, let's just on your own, don't, don't add Chip or, or Wendy. <laughs> I don't want you to add their sins on you. Who in here would want every one of your sins that you've been around? I'm almost six decades now. I told you that this morning. Okay? Every one of my sins for six decades, that one instant just poured on me. Does anybody here want that? Just what you did. Not just the sin itself, but think about how about the just punishment for that sin? All of it at one time. Now you begin to get just a glimpse of what took place on Calvary. You see, Jesus bore the sin not for just Tony Pierce, but he bore the sin for all mankind. And not only did he bear it, not only did he carry our sin, but he was punished for our sin. As Isaiah said, the iniquity of us all was laid upon him, and it pleased the Father to bruise him for me and for you. And for everyone, we can't even begin to, to, to fathom what Jesus faced on Calvary. What do you expect hell's for? Don't we, evident in the back of our mind, hell is for the worst of the worst. Bad people go to hell. Sinners go to hell. Sinners deserve hell. You understand, for the six hours upon the cross, Jesus experienced hell. Now, there are some neo-Christian teachers that say he went to hell and suffered in hell. It's not true. He suffered on the cross. And the the suffering was done on the cross. It was over upon the cross. He did go to the place of the dead. And he preached to the captives there. And he set the captives free. But he experienced hell upon the cross. He experienced the full judgment of God upon the cross. For you and for me. The cross was a demeaning place. We've talked about that before. The Romans made sure that, you know, who dies upon, and the Bible says it's long before the end. Who dies upon a tree? Huh? The, the worst. Cursed. Cursed is everyone who dies upon a tree. And yet that's what he came to die upon a tree. 
Not by accident. It, it was no accident he came when he came, and all the things were going as they were going when it, as they were going. There's no accident that Rome was in power and they killed people by crucifixion, by a tree. It's just no accident. There's no accident here. It is, once again, a demonstration of the humility of Almighty God. Now, here's what the true, where the true humility is for me. He didn't have to do any of this stuff. See, there's true humility. He didn't have to do any of this. He willingly did this. It's not humility, to ha- again, to have someone make you do something that, that you do, or even that you ought to do. That's, that's just being overpowered. Jesus didn't have to do any of these things, but he did. To the lowest, if you will, common denominator in all of his walk here upon this earth. It's incredible to me when you start thinking of it that way. Now, before we close out, aren't you glad God didn't leave Jesus on the cross? Because that's part of the story. And it is a crucially important part of the story. But it doesn't stop there. Because you know what happens three days later. He rose from the dead. And I hope you know and I hope you believe that he's coming back again. We do not serve a dead martyr of our faith. We, we serve a living Savior who's overcome sin, death, and hell. Now look at what it says. Because he willingly did these things, now what is true about him? Because he completely humbled himself, now the Bible says, now he has been exalted. Okay? He is exalted over all creation. And here's what you need to know. He's exalted even in the lives of those who don't even believe him. I want to tell you this. He's exalted even in the lives of those who will not believe him before they leave this earth. That's what he says right here. Look what he says. He says, says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. And then he says, at the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and it of those in heaven and those on earth. That pretty well includes everybody. Okay? And by the way, if you miss that one, and those under the earth can't get away. So you know what that tells you? Everybody in heaven knows Jesus is Lord and professes that. Everybody on earth will know that Jesus is Lord and will profess that, those who will be on earth that day. And everybody in hell will know that Jesus Christ is Lord and will profess that, that that's true. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Matter of fact, I believe that's what that's going to be one of the key things that make hell so bad. They're going to spend eternity knowing the truth. Nobody in hell is going to be in hell wondering why they're there. And then nobody's going to have an argument. I mean, they do nowadays. Everybody has an argument. There's no hell. There's no God. There's all these kind of things. Jesus is this, that, and the other thing. That day, can you imagine... Spend an eternity in perfect clarity of the truth that you denied. And there's no argument. There's no debate. There's no dispute. Every deal about and every time will confess. Now what is true of every born again believer, that's already happened in your life. You confess that truth. You bowed yourself before the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You did that under salvation. Very sad to me to think that there'll be those who will do that under damnation. But everybody, everybody will do that because of who he eternally is. If 
he would have never come. Would that change the outcome of who he is? And the answer, of course, is no. But because he did come, I want you to think about this. It certainly removes any possibility of anybody refuting God's justice for those who reject him. Because God has done, through his son Jesus Christ, everything that could possibly be done for people to know forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And he could, the point is, he could have come just proclaiming it. And it would be true. He could have just shined the lights and done a few dazzling things and you know, hung around in the heavens and stuff like that. And everybody, ooh, okay, yeah. It would be true. It wouldn't change it. It would be true. But that's not the way he did it. He came in humility. Now listen, point and we'll close. If the Lord of glory is willing to humble himself in that way, what keeps us from humbling ourselves toward with each other and before the world itself? Say, so, well, I, I don't really have a, that big a problem humbling myself before my brothers and sisters of Christ. Well, well, we can argue about that one way or another. I think there's a lot of problem in the church with people humbling themselves before each other. But Christians somehow have said, but I certainly have a problem humbling myself before that lost world out there. Do you think you're better than Jesus? Well, they don't believe. They, won't, they don't like me and they don't trust me. Do you, uh, my, my question remains the same. Do you think you're better than Jesus? They reject me. They hate me. They curse me. They spit at me. They do all these things. Do you think that you're better than Jesus? Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We never, ever have an excuse not to humble ourselves before each other and humble ourselves even before the lost world out there. You see, humbling ourselves does not mean becoming a doormat and it doesn't mean not standing for the truth because Jesus was neither one of those things. But it certainly means seeing the need of other people more than taking care of our own need. And that's a huge thing for us. It's a huge thing for me. I've already determined, to be quite honest with you, in some places in my life, and I try to pull back from these things, there are some people that don't deserve salvation. I've already determined that. And if it was left to me, I wouldn't tell them. I wouldn't. There are people that I have real problems with. And not just, not just religious groups. Don't, don't just get care. There are people that I've met here in America. There's even some family members I have some real problems with. I have some real personal problems with. The problem is, most of that personal problem starts within me. They are who they are. And it, it would be very difficult for me to humble myself before them in that sense to share. How about you? you have anybody like that in your life? Of course you do. Of course you do. How's it going to change for us? Surrender. <laughs> Submission to the Holy Spirit. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Lord, help me. I've got to have that. Because if not, I've already predetermined some people that I would and would not share with. And I should never make that determination. Only the Holy Spirit should make that determination. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the promise we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for the great love that you poured out in Jesus' coming. And Father, I just pray that, that you would teach us daily and hourly to submit to you, to surrender to you, that we might walk genuinely as your, your humble people in the world that you put us. 
that we might be vessels that you can use to touch anybody and everybody with your love and the message of your gospel that you have designed to reach that. Or we're not here to determine anything. We're here to respond to you just like Jesus did. Humble us before yourself and before each other. Give us genuine love in the way you love us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.